What up, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 173 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I sat down with Michael Michelini. He's the host of Global from Asia podcast, author of e-commerce Gladiator, and somebody who's been living in Asia a very long time, sourcing products, selling them on various platforms such as eBay, Amazon, and has a very good handle on how this trade war is affecting everybody involved. As Michael says, Amazon is a beast of a company, but there is still money to be made by finding a product and selling it through Amazon, something that I plan to do here in the near future as well. So if you're somebody out there interested in learning about how to source products from China and then use Fulfillment by Amazon to get those products sold to customers in the U.S., definitely need to check out his podcast, Global from Asia. Read his book as he charts a two-year journey of finding a product, developing products for coffee lovers, and then selling the business. That's in his book, E-Commerce Gladiator. All the links are in the show notes. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please pull out that phone and hit the subscribe button or whatever you're listening to this podcast on. Please hit that subscribe button. Really helps me in iTunes ratings. I would appreciate it. And with that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Michael Michelini. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit. In America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm joined by Michael Michelini from Global From Asia Podcast. How are you, my friend? I'm great, man. Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here, fellow podcasters. Always nice to have on the show and uh, talk about the ups and downs of podcasting and (laughs) what you're actually talking about on your show because especially with what's going on with uh, Trump and and, and trade wars with Asia, I think it's a really significant topic. Mm -hmm. I mean, you were just featured on Bloomberg, which is huge. Congratulations on that. Thanks, dude. Thanks. What was that experience like, I guess? Let's start with that. I mean, Bloomberg contacted you and they said what? I think it's one of the advantages of being a podcaster. I know it's a, it's a sometimes a loveless, you know, a thankless job almost doing podcasts and content creation. But then you become like an influencer leader in the industry. So they're looking for quotes. They're looking for experts to talk to. And of course, for me with my blog and podcast, Global Information, we rank in Google for a lot of these keywords about Amazon from China, cross-border e-commerce, import-export. So she had found me, got connected to me, and then was just asking me, you know, I think she added me on WeChat and was just asking me some questions about the trade war and then she liked my story, we did some calls, she added me in a quote in one of her articles which we could link up just as a one sentence but then she really liked the story, she's like, oh, can I ask you more questions, can we talk some more and then multiple long one hour plus calls, I wish we could record them like, like we are today but, you know, reporters are still a little bit earlier and they just want to keep things private and... But uh, it was just lots and lots of calls. And then she even liked my story about my family, my, my roots, my uncle. So she got my uncle into the recording. They recorded some of it. They're going to make a podcast, too, about it. So They're going to come on your podcast? Uh, they're, they have Bloomberg podcasts. No way. Yeah. That's rad, dude. So, so like, I, I, we talked a little bit pre-show, and you kind of were a little concerned about being misquoted. Yeah, I know. We... Uh, I think reporters are looking for buzzwords or looking for stories. So I, I remember she was clarifying with me for the re, for the release. She's like, "Should I 
why did you move to Thailand? Wasn't it because of the trade war? I'm like, I mean, I said it was getting tension, but I didn't. I said it was mostly because of my family. Like, I'm not going to change my real primary was for my kid's school. I'm, uh, even though it might be a good story, I said it was getting a little bit tense in the trade. Maybe I left before trade war, but, you know, I'm just afraid she'll pick some highlights that maybe the internet might like more. Understandable, dude. And I guess the gamble we always take to get <laughs> yeah. our message out there. Uh, so the audience can understand. I mean, you've been in Asia now 10 years been doing business in Asia for that amount of time, or what brought you to Asia originally? Uh, I came to Asia for, yeah, import, importing products from China. I was selling on eBay since 2004. I was, a lot of people like to know I worked at Wall Street, I was in uh, Deutsche Bank, and selling on eBay nights and weekends, my website, before Amazon was a monster it is. Of course, trying to figure how to buy from China, all roads for e-commerce lead to China, and I didn't like my day job anyway, so I quit the day job, was selling online full-time, sourcing from factories, came out here 07. Never thought I would live. I didn't even know it was possible to live outside of your home country or possible to live in China. But then people were like, you, you can live here. I'm like, I can live here? You live here? You know? And I'm like, yeah, okay. And and uh, and I didn't stay right away. I mean, I, I went back and took my return ticket after a month and then told my parents, hey, I'm I'm out of here for a while. I never knew it would be 10 years. I wish I had known, but... So, yeah, Connecticut, working on Wall Street was kind of way... You came from Connecticut. You went after what school yeah. to Wall Street, did that yep. thing, got sick of it, decided to come to China. I think from my listener's perspective, like, if you're not teaching English in China, <laughs> like, how are you living? I mean, I get you can make money now because you had the eBay thing, but, like, the visa situation, like, yeah, how did the, that work for you? So the, the hack I did was I picked Shenzhen, which is the south city, one of the most south cities of China. Uh, it's right across from Hong Kong. So I, I like the city anyway, but definitely one of the pluses on the checklist over Shanghai, which is an awesome city, or Beijing, was the visa situation. So I was on a business visa, which gave me a 30-day stay, one year, as an, with a U.S. passport. At least since 2007, and it's always changing. But so I would just stay I would, one year means what? Like, so I could stay. The the visa lasted for one year from issue, but you can't stay in more than thirty days con, consecutively. Okay. You have to leave. But the hack is, you li- Hong Kong is leaving, ah. and it's a land border. So a lot of hustlers like us, like your <laughs> listeners and me, people probably were like. We didn't want to fly out. You know, if you're in Shanghai or Beijing or other cities of China, you, that means you have to book a plane ticket, which is kind of cool. And I know friends that do that, but it adds up, and it's also more pain in the butt. With, with Shenzhen, you just literally took a bus. Or some people, you can even ride, I even rode my bikes, <laughs> like a pedal bike to the border, across the border. And uh, even on my blog, people ask, how long do you have to stay? Can you just turn around and go back? I mean, I never would really turn around and go back. I would, like, get lunch or... I do a lot of banking, or I would do some kind of shopping. But yeah, you can go and come back. Mm-hmm. So we, that's how I did it for uh, a year or two. But I did finally register a company. Um, I could have done other hacks, like have my friends fake hire me, or you know, on paper hire you, which I had some friends do. But I, I went the long route, the expensive route of registering a company, hiring myself, getting a work permit. Um, but that was. You know, for the first couple of years, I was just doing a 30-day 
Cool. You just got to be careful. You got to, you know, mark your calendar. Don't overstay. If you overstay, you're done. Your visa's done. Uh, I don't know. Now it's much more strict, but back then it would be a penalty per day. I had one friend that stayed overstayed by a month, and it was like, you know, thousands of U.S. dollars. Wow, okay. And, of course, if you do it, I think twice you're... Once you can just pay money. Second time, I had a friend that was banned from China. But he's such a hustler. He's Australian. He got a new passport in Australia and reapplied and got it. So, at least in the time, the numbers were different. I think they're getting smarter every... All all these governments are getting smarter. And, unfortunately, it's getting harder. But but that was the hack I did. So, when uh, you made the move... Did you enjoy China, or did you enjoy the business side, which is what was keeping you there? Like, did you find, did you fall in love with the culture, and you're like, this is the perfect fit, or was it kind of a struggle? <laughs> I I think I love. I lived in New York City, you know, on Wall Street for almost five years before I came. I loved the hustle and action of New York, and I, when I came to China, I, I underestimated it when I first came. Like, I technically flew into Hong Kong, and I was like. I pissed off my Chinese friends, but I thought I was going to be in, like, rice fields. <laughs> I, I, I thought I was going to be, like, I, I thought I was going to be in rice fields. And, but this was, like, freaking well-developed cities, you know, like, skyscrapers and hustle and bustle. And it was, like, nonstop, like, 10x more than New York City, you know. Like, you could never sleep in China forever, and I, even in small cities, which were packed. So I just loved that hustle and energy and just, especially in Shenzhen, it's, like, an entrepreneur city. So I fell in love with that part of it. I can't say I'm like a, a history buff or a culture buff. I, I didn't really study a lot of languages when I was in school. So I just like the business opportunity of it, or it really, to be it honest. Sounds like you also went like a huge traveler prior to coming to Asia, or at least in Asia. Yeah, I mean, I backpacked Europe after okay. after college, but then I almost felt like my life was over. Like I remember feeling like after this, I graduated college, I spent a, a month in Europe, and I even did some other trips i drove cross country u.s i went to jamaica i just was feeling like i'm gonna work for the rest of my life i don't know I just, or I'm even work or even i did want to start my own business but i just didn't think i would be traveling as much but now i'm just always on the road yeah which you seem to like i mean you just got back from the the uh product fair what was it called in china canton fair the canton fair where i just learned we just sat in a nice meetup for all yeah. these uh amazon fba sellers uh one of the biggest fairs in China for all the manufacturers and people to go yeah. and source products and stuff like that. That's what brought me to China for the first time was the trade shows. There's others. Canton Fair is a famous one, but there's lots of trade shows around, always in the spring and the fall. So that's how my my first time to China, too. What was your first product that you've kind of started? Bar supplies. Bar supplies. Kitchen, like bottle openers, pour spouts, uh, home bar stuff. Interesting. I did that for eight years. So that was there was money in that, good money. Decent money. I mean, lifestyle business money, yeah. Interesting. And now that you go back, I mean, I know, I know it's kind of a secret thing. You don't divulge what you're trying to, like, source from these, like, fairs. But, like, the experience you just described sound pretty overwhelming if you don't yeah. have a plan. I mean, it's miles and miles of just, like, It's just unending, yeah. It's unending. I mean, seriously, like, what we recommend it. Oh, I always recommend people to have at least a ballpark, at least some kind of a category. Even category is not enough. Like at least some some idea of a product, a few product range items, because uh, it's football fields and football fields. Like you are tired at the end of each day. Your mm-hmm. feet are. That's why, especially girls, don't wear you know wear comfortable shoes. Mm-hmm. Just wear don't no flip flops. Like you're wear you're gonna be walking like all day. So at this point, with your years of experience, I mean you 
go in with a strategy, but are you also looking for new products you hadn't considered? So the cool thing is you, if, for me now, I see the factories I already buy from. It's just a way also to see a lot of factories that you're doing business with at the same time. Get FaceTime. Yeah, so you can kind of hit that all at one in a couple of days rather than flying or taking buses or, you know, because China's huge and there's factories all over the place, so to see them all separately is is, is, uh, is, is a lot. So I see factories I'm already doing, with, doing business with. They show me new products that they're making or new product ideas. Like, um, you know, it's true we're secretive, but I'm also doing coffee accessories. It's, okay. it's uh, coffee uh, pots, and so she showed me, like, a new style uh, coffee pot that it sounds really boring but it's like this one can work on electric and gas stoves you know when you get deep into your product you know you geek out on these small features but then they say oh we have new material or we have this new feature and then you can shake hands with the factory owner or the sales reps you know you can see their whole line of course you can do that at the factory but then the other cool thing is you can see their competitors because they group the Canton Fair by a category okay. so you just walk down one aisle and you see your fact it's your factory and you can look next door and you see a new factory of that same group mm-hmm. so you can kind of get some new ideas and you can also monitor if they're selling your proprietary product so if you make some new new product you, they promise not to sell it to other like rip you off basically. rip you off yeah so you can kind of double check by seeing if you see it on the shelf or not you know yeah it sounds like a complex sort of uh not just a negotiation, but a dance you have to do to get your products manufactured, to get them shipped, to get yeah. the um, um, inspections for quality control. I mean, there's so many layers and so many other businesses that you probably need to employ to get this done correctly. Are all your products going straight to Amazon? Like, or do you sell from your own like little warehouse somewhere, or do you have like? I'm. Uh, I eat my own words, but today I'd say I'm all in on Amazon. Okay. Um, uh, I. I s- even when we, I think, you know, we can talk about it. I sold the business a couple months ago. I joined as a partner in a bigger investment company called mm-hmm. Alpha Rock, and they didn't care about my website sales. They didn't even almost didn't want them. <laughs> like, it's just another complexity. Being in all in Amazon is, of course, scary because, like you said, we, we've had this event before, and it's scary, but it's also focus, and you can scale faster. The hard part about doing website sales or even eBay is it's, it's much more complicated for somebody to transfer the business or to hire hire staff. So we have a lot of people in the Philippines we hire. We have a full-time office there. It's much more standardized. So scaling and growing is much faster on Amazon than on a website, than on uh, eBay or other channels. So mm-hmm. it just makes things simpler. And you wrote, just wrote a book. Called yeah. What? What is it? E- e-commerce Gladiator. Yeah. What is the premise of that? So I started the coffee brand on on my podcast. Some, you know, a lot of my friends and uh, listeners and audience were like, "It's true." Like I wasn't really actively selling on Amazon for a few years. I had been, I had gotten out of the e-commerce business, and I wasn't really practicing what I preached. And some of my friends said, "Hey, you should get back in the game." And they said, hey, why don't we make it like a public case study, put it out on the podcast, you know, show everything. And I even had people in the audience apply to be a partner, to invest and to run the business with me. So I, I, uh, I raised, I, I was shy, I should have raised more money, but my friends were like, don't, don't take too many people's money. So we raised 40000 US and uh, to buy for inventory and to start the business. And then we had 
I call it a hustler. I had the investor, and then I was like more the advisor, uh, business connector, and we started it. So I, I don't know, like you know, you have your your show. So I did. It was part of the goal for me to show, but we called it e-commerce gladiator, and I picked the name because I feel like sellers on Amazon are the modern day gladiators in the arena. So what we're doing is like the risks of Amazon itself either competing with you or cutting you down or your competitors or your factories I feel like we as a seller are a gladiator and so I picked that name and the book is basically the two year story from start to finish to sale so it's a it's a story but it's also I think uh, a blueprint for somebody to do their own Amazon business so when you uh, pitched it to your audience was it like hey let's come up with a product yeah and the coffee thing was what they came up with yeah yeah, based on their like of coffee or like research <laughs> done like in the marketplace for like a demand. Yeah, it was researched. <laughs> really? uh, there's uh, there's lots of these tools, you know. So we we all came collectively together to find a product. We started from literally zero. We had money. It's actually almost pressure because you get money in the bank, you got to use that money, which I'm not used to. I'm used to hustling and selling something I don't have. And, yeah, so it was like the opposite kind of pressure. Um, so we were all just throwing these ideas together, and then one guy, Lorenzo, uh, shout out if he's listening or watching, but he uh, he he's a good uh, he's a we're all hustlers, and he's just like, oh Mike, I got this is the best product. I I did this report, and there's a lot, there's some big competitors, and then there's a lot of like bad smaller competitors, and we can hit the middle of this market and uh, show the search volume and the competitive landscape and. And then, uh, and also, we the other partners liked it. We also saw we could build a product line around it. So you're not. We didn't want to just build. We didn't want to just have a one hit wonder. You know, when you sell on Amazon, you got two choices really. One is looking for trends and just hitting it, like finding like the new iPhone case and or making a new. Uh, just take anything that looks sell and just sell it, which I don't like is not sustainable. The other is to find a brand and a niche that you can build lots of accessories around. So the coffee. Ex- accessories look like you could add a lot of different products around it so it looked like it had a long life um, besides just one product some of the other products we are looking at porcelain figurines for the garden or i guess it could have gone into garden products but we just didn't feel like the products we had found were uh as good but of course we could have been wrong we started with one listing yeah but it did well and then we had another listing and it did well we could have been wrong, but we also tested a uh, aquaponics, like this. You can grow um, some vegetables in like a like hydroponics, hydroponics or, product. Yeah, we yeah. we picked that, and it did okay. But you can compare, you can test different products. But we we went all deeper into the okay, coffee. Okay, so you, you scrapped the hydro, and you just went all in on the uh, coffee. Now we talked earlier pre-show that Amazon rips people off once they're doing good <laughs> yeah. like or the, is that normal behavior of amazon like yeah everybody some people think like i think any seller listening would agree with me Every, at first you think oh, amazon's so nice they're a freaking capitalist they're like <laughs> the number one capitalist they're just care about their sh- shareholders which of course their customers and you're not, you as a seller are not their customer and honestly you sell this coffee product is not your customer. It's Amazon's customer. You're just delivering the product. Hmm. They don't share the email address. They don't now. They take more and more data from us, and uh, their job, I think, is three things. Jeff Bezos or Amazon says is like the cheapest, the fastest, and the best service. So, 
they're going direct. Their idea is factory direct to the customer. They want that relationship. So if they see your product is doing well, their algorithm picks up on it. They go straight to the factory and say, "Make this product, and we're going to sell it as an Amazon product." For <laughs> so there's uh, there's two different ways they can do it. But yeah, they're looking at data, and then they have their they have so many different departments. So one way they could do is make something like Amazon Basics. Have you ever seen Amazon? They have their brand called Amazon Basics, which is kind of like even but it's, you know it's the same even in department stores like Walmart. They have their own brands. You know all these. Stores there or distribution companies make their own brand. They see this product selling, they'll make it cheaper. But they have more than just Amazon Basics. But that's one of their main okay. brands. So one is they buy it themselves from the factory and they sell it on their own private label and become your competitor. Two is they tell the factory to make their own brand, put it into Amazon, and sell it as a factory brand where they don't own it. Right. But yeah, they're capitalistic. They're looking at the numbers, and they have people in their companies that's KPI and job is to like find hot products, make brands, or convince factories to get on. And mm-hmm. I've worked, you know, I lived in China ten years, and I've met people who work in Amazon in China. Their job is not even. You probably don't understand the different. There's differences. The listeners don't understand. People think it's Chinese factories. Everybody, all Chinese people are Chinese factories. They're not. There's hustlers like you and me that are uh, trading companies or are. You know, uh, entrepreneurs—they don't have a factory. They're just seeing opportunity too. Ch- uh, Amazon doesn't even want those guys. They mm-hmm. want the actual owner of the factory to put the product on Amazon. So even Chinese sellers that are trading companies feel threatened by Amazon because Amazon's trying to cut them out. Wow. Yeah, you think it's like Chinese <laughs> sellers? They're trying to get Chinese factories. It's like even deeper. That's There's like wild. a lot of people don't understand. There's different levels of Chinese seller. And I think just to make it clear to the audience, it sounds scary because you're like, "Oh, well, I'm just going to lose everything," but there's still tons of money. Yeah, I know. This is this is where people get so scared. I mean, honestly, even for me, I didn't want to get into Amazon a few years ago back in Amazon because I was I was like, "Oh, they're just trying to cut me out." But I'm sorry, I don't have the numbers. But you know, I think there's that traditional big chart, and I think there's still like eighty something percent offline or off off uh, offline sales. Mm-hmm. You know, and now it's Amazon's like half of the e-commerce market in the U.S. Something like this, and then, but it's still like only five or eight percent of the total commerce market. Mm-hmm. So the idea is we're trying to you know you see GC Penny going bankrupt. I think they're are they bankrupt yet, or they'll be bankrupt or <laughs> something. Yeah. You know, all these all these retailers are getting killed. Like Walmart's trying to go to online. Everybody's trying to move online. So, yeah, the idea is, of course, getting Amazon's getting their factors going there, but there's still a huge e-commerce market. It's, it's not them killing each other. It's killing the retailers right. and the traditional commerce. Right. So, yeah, you're an Amazon FBA. You have a book. You have yeah. your podcast. Is your podcast monetized? It's a, it's it's kind of become this platform. Like it's hard. Like I pay, you know, we pay our time, and I have some team, amazing team that helps me make the show. And uh, but it doesn't direct. We have sometimes some sponsors. What we do is we also have events. We have, um, you know, so it's it's hard to directly measure the ROI of the podcast. But uh, it's more for like it made e-commerce gladiator. It it got me to start this business. I, I. uh, which led me to be a partner in an investment company, which fed back to events, which fed back. So it's more like I do have some sponsors in in the show. Um, it's helped create it's an ecosystem c- now that you have more. But it's more like and- yeah, I think we've talked about it as yeah. podcasters. 
it's a mix. I think a podcast can be a product where you're just trying to directly monetize it, which I think is hard. But I think the better way is looking at it like a, a business development extension of your other businesses. Yeah. You mind me asking how old you are? I'm 38. I'm 1981. Okay. Congratulations. You I know I probably look way younger. I know. <laughs> you do sure. actually look very young. I know. Um, I'm married. I have a five-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old. Yeah, dude. You've been living in China 10 years, which I would imagine takes Makes a you look older, yeah. right? Uh, so, people say I look younger than I did 10 years ago. Yeah, the pollution and stress. But yeah, <laughs> you wear it well, dude. Congratulations. I mean, yeah, so now you're, you just left China because you were saying pre-show, if you don't mind me sharing, that the schools here in Chiang Mai are amazing. Yeah, they're great. And, and, and quite cheap, a mess. man. Yeah. I don't want to say, cheap ways to send a meetup is like bad, but very reasonable price. Yeah, and so you can still conduct your business from here in a very healthy way that allows you the freedom now yeah. to like do what you want with your family. Yeah, I mean, the visa stuff is tricky everywhere. That seems like the hard part, but... You know, they're in school, so they're on student visas, and I'm, a, I'm on a parent visa, or it's technically called a guardian visa. Okay. So, uh, I don't know, I, I'm not so worried, but some people I want to interview even on my podcast in Thailand don't want to be on, because everybody here is on some kind of non-work visa. Mm-hmm. So, even I think I, I'm probably, uh, it's not really a work visa, but I don't know how Thailand... They must expect me to make money, but I guess I'm not selling locally, so they don't really care. I work online. But yeah, I'm on a visa. My wife's on a visa one year. The kids are on student visas. Uh, And then, yeah, just two hours or so, two and a half hours to China, direct flights from Chiang Mai, all all over Asia. I think the choice I had or a lot of dads have is, you know, I'm sure you might talk to some other guests. You know, living overseas is... Is fun when you're single, but when it gets to be married with kids, that's when it gets. A lot of people usually go back to their home country, right? Like the U.S. for mm-hmm. us, for because the school. If you ask them, probably usually boils down to school costs. And of course, like a lot of my amazing friends in China that are Americans went back to the U.S. when they had kids um, because of that. It's just when, and of course, I'm paying you know seven or eight thousand per kid right now. But uh, I chose to stay here for a year for school. Yeah, yeah. I chose. I could have gone lower. Of course, I could have gone higher. But uh, you know, somebody said, "Oh, you can go back to America. It would be free school." I'm like, "It's not really free because there's there's cost of living. There's you know the tax implications, and then there's also my freaking happiness (laughs) as a human being. (laughs) Like seriously, and even my business is still kind of." Kind of related, right? I mean, my show is global from Asia. I guess some people say it would be more valuable from the U.S. teaching or sharing about China and Asia business from the U.S. It's true. I guess people would be more interested in this information. You know, it's uh, harder for them to get this information. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I chose to stay out here. And it seems like it's going well. It's been a bit over a year now here. Do you think your li- what, do you know where your listeners are coming from for your podcast? I mean, is it mostly from Asia? They're, they're, um, of course, a lot are in the U.S. Okay. But it's hard to really know because of VPNs and stuff with Chinese uh, people. But, yeah, it's definitely more U.S. Explain a VPN so the audience understands. Oh, sorry. I think it means virtual private network, but basically it's almost a requirement in China because uh, China blocks Facebook, for example. You want to get on Facebook, you have to kind of fake your IP or change your IP to connect to like a U.S. basically. Yeah, so you use these services that that connects to your computer and 
it kind of hides you, goes under it. We call it the Great Firewall of China, GFW. Okay. So you use the VPN to get under it to connect to like Facebook, YouTube, Google, even Google.com is blocked. It's unbelievable. But all the Chinese are still able to access it because they use a VPN. Yeah, it's a cat and mouse. So China's trying. Of course, China doesn't want you to even use it. They don't want you to go onto Google or anything. Right. So they try to block VPNs, but the VPNs up so upgrade and then they get blocked or you switch around different services. But yeah, do uh, your does your family support you in the, in your lifestyle decisions? So that's what's interesting. That's why Bloomberg actually think likes my article because my mom cried when I moved to China because she's like, "Oh, you, why are you leaving America? You don't love, you don't have enough opportunity here." Blah blah. blah. And then, you know, my uncle is like, a lot of these are kind of like, they're kind of like Trump supporter, patriotic, like pro America, pro. A lot of them haven't even really left America. Yeah, the yeah. older guard and old school sort of like mentality. <laughs> so. They they um they've accepted it, but I won't say they were happy about it. Of course, it's true. Like you, you know, I'm a father now. I just think my kids will move to the other side of the world is not making me happy either, right? But they and your wife's off. Chinese, so it's yeah. like your her home is right here. So that kind of also makes it harder to be like uproot everybody and go back to Which one place you don't crazy, want to be. Because her uh, grandmother passed away literally like a couple weeks ago. I, I didn't expect it, but man, she booked a flight like, like bam, like booked flight and was on a plane like. Which meant you had the kids to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so lucky I get to watch kids for a few days while I do all this other stuff. Yeah, and yeah. Some of them are. Sometimes my kids are on the on the podcast. <laughs> are they? Oh, because they're just running around your feet. Yeah. Uh, does your wife work, or is she a full time? She's mom? A, she helps me out basically. We have these events, especially in China. Yeah, definitely. She's come, kind of become my like Chinese partner in business. Um, we do some retreats and some business things. We try to have the Chinese community involved with what we do too. Um, but yeah, basically, she's uh, she's uh, involved, involved, heavily involved heavily in everything. All kids, yeah. business. Um, when you were in China, it was ten years. Did you pick up Chinese? And do you speak to your wife in Chinese? We unfortunately we. Speaking English to each other, she doesn't have the patience for my bad Chinese. But I mean, I I'm confident to fl- I can fly into a Chinese city and get by with a taxi and restaurants. I mean, I'm but my kids my kids five and he speaks better Chinese than me to give you an idea. But yeah, you were I, saying your kids were going to school in China where it was um, all Chinese except for yeah, one English class a day. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was bugging me out. That's that's I think where a lot of parents like me like finally give up our China dream or whatever you want to call it. But to get English education in China is freaking expensive. Mm-hmm. Like that's where you're twenty to twenty five thousand a year per kid. And the private tutors aren't really an option. Yeah, that's I mean that that would be, you know, that's that's why there's so many English teaching jobs, you know, right. online, but. And then my friend's like, oh, you can teach your kid English. I'm like, yeah, I got all this time. And you just to teach. speak to them now. That's kind of I like, speak to them, yeah. but it was getting points. Of course, they could understand, but I was outnumbered. I, they're speaking Chinese to everybody in my house. Oh, I see you what know, you're Speaking like, Chinese all day to all their you friends. You were losing the... Uh, I was losing connection. Yeah. I know some expat friends that just... Can't understand let, their kids. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that... I, I just couldn't... They no, couldn't accept that, man. Fair enough. But now that you have them here in Thailand, what's yeah, the situation English. with language? So when they first came to Chiang Mai, like in Jan- in uh, August 2018, they uh, 
I had to give a cheat sheet to the teacher of Chinese. Like, I had to write out, like, bathroom or dad. Well, they, I, you know, grandpa or... I, it was not that many, but I remember I literally had to, like, write down a cheat sheet on a paper and I gave it to the teacher because they weren't speaking any English, so... But they were amazed, like, soon, three, four, five, six months, they're both saying English is much better. The funny thing is my son's a little bit older and had more time in China, so he's prefers to speak Chinese. So even the other day, literally a year, almost a year and a half into this, she, he's like, I want to go back to China. I, I don't want to, like, speak English all the time. But my daughter was younger, and she didn't go to school in China. So she's, like, she's uh, happy speaking English all day. So your wife only speaks them in Chinese, so, right? Yeah, they still so speak they, in Chinese. they will maintain that. They won't ever lose their the Chinese. One, the one negative is uh, they might not write. You know, the characters are so hard to learn Chinese characters. They might just be more uh, oral Chinese, not written Chinese. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's still fine. I mean, having the language skills are more important, I think, than writing you know, in the future. So sounds like you're kind of in it for at least the next year here in Chiang Mai. Yeah, I mean, the big bummer here is burning season. Yeah, I've been through it. Yeah, it's horrible. There are first years this past year, and mm. then it was like the worst on a record too. So it's yeah. just, just killing me. But uh, that it was a big bummer, and so we're planning to like bail for a month or two for that. But yeah, besides that, we're happy. That's cool. And then the immigration is always scary, but it seems like we're renewing okay. Just stay on top of it. Yeah. Um, just to plug your podcast a little bit more because I think it's an interesting topic that a lot of people get a lot of information sure. about Asia, what's going on in Asia business wise. Like, who are, who are you targeting mostly to bring on? Like, yeah. So people can yeah, like, know what they're getting of, themselves into. A lot of yeah, we we've kind of gotten more heavy on the e-commerce part of trading between overseas and uh, China and Asia, but uh, it's really uh, like I just did a show today, recording with an expert in America, this influencer, and we're talking about it from the perspective of from being in Asia. So I talked to like some top sellers in China, like seven-figure Amazon seller lately. We talked to um, a lot of e-commerce and physical product people doing business between China and Asia and U.S. or even Europe. So it's always it's somewhat stuff you might learn in America, but from the perspective of doing it in Asia. Okay. And uh, people like it because I don't say it's it's not beginner because I'm not a beginner. So when I interview somebody, I don't want to talk like 101 about this topic. So we dive into some more like middle to advanced type content within the e-commerce from Asia type business. But for for the novice listener, they're going to get the gist of it, you'd say? I think that they can follow it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that they would follow it. But it's people always like that. They said some of our ratings on Amazon are not Amazon. iTunes are like, oh, finally something that's not U.S. centric. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not like talking about what's happening in the U.S. We're talking about more like trade war. Mm-hmm. Actually, I just had one literally went out this Tuesday. I said, why does the rest of the world hate Americans? <laughs> I, I saw kinda, that post. You saw that one? Yeah. And we had this ex, another American. We're two Americans talking about why people hate Americans, which is kind of funny. But, uh-huh. uh, you know, I'm trying to give perspective. Like, I interviewed my uncle, and I said uh, the gutting of the American blue-collar worker, because he's been, like, unemployed for for years, because he worked in machine shops, doesn't have, a, like, traditional college education. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's always this perspective of being overseas. Of course, it's English language. Um, but we try to get some unique people that are on the ground doing business in uh, in Asia, or cool. have the perspective of it. 
That's cool, man. Uh, Two-part question to kind of wrap up. If you could, like, help the audience understand you better, what's one thing you'd want them to know about you and, like, what you're doing and, okay. how, you, and how you got started? So that two-part, like, convey okay. a little bit about yourself and then, like, how maybe they could get into what you're doing on their own way. In their own way. Sure. I mean, I think... Uh I think for me, it's uh, it's always been e-commerce or online business from with always was pretty much well. 2004 started selling eBay, but 2007, 2006 buying from China, but Asia e-commerce international, and I think the best way for people to do it is just taking action. I mean, I think the most annoying thing to me is when somebody's like listening to my podcast for years and they still haven't really bought a product or they still haven't like started even selling something you know so I think just taking action and just be willing to make a mistake not being afraid to make a mistake because once you're afraid to make a mistake you're not going to take any action so I think that's my biggest takeaway of my life my friends have always said like uh, man it's like I'm living in a in a book but I just think of life as a book you yeah. know and then there's going to be some bad chapters where you're going to get your ass your butt kicked and there's going to be some other chapters where you're going to hopefully win but you know and uh there's obviously so many Steve Jobs quotes or there's so many so many motivational quotes, but if you're not mis- making a mistake, you're not moving forward. 100%. If they did want to find a product, I mean, do they have to go to a, uh, one of those fairs or can they just go on Alibaba? I mean, literally, it? I talked to a good friend of mine from college uh, a couple of days ago, and he's he's asked me about buying from factories in China, and he's got some new invention. And I said, I... I mean, I have no financial interest anyway. I don't even. I used to kind of do sourcing or help people buy, but I don't. I don't like to do that anyway. I said, "Sorry, dude, this is not. Don't buy this from China. Buy this in the U.S. Maybe find some prices in China so you can understand. But just buy. You can get smaller quantities. You can get faster turnarounds, especially with this trade war and stuff. Just like I said at these meetups, you're not trying to maximize profit when you start." You're just trying to get the sell side because you can always fix your buy side later. You can improve your margins. You can buy direct, but you just just sell. Just start small, and uh, don't worry if you're not making a lot of profit. Um, a quick story is my first e-commerce business, the bar products. I couldn't find a drop shipper. I could only find a wholesaler that was shipped to me only, not to my customer directly. So I listed 250 of his products. And I, uh, I said five to seven day order delivery on eBay and my website. And people would buy it. And I would lose money because I was second day air from the wholesaler in Florida to my apartment in New York City. And then second day air at UPS to my customer. And you do the packaging yourself. Yeah, I did it myself. And my friends are like, you're crazy. You're losing money. I'm like, I'm losing money, but I'm learning what my customer wants. So then I dropped more than half of the SKUs of 200. I had like a, still a lot, actually, about 100. That was my biggest mistake with my first business, too many products, but um, I stocked those. And then I learned what people wanted. And then you, then I bought from whole, wholesalers, then I found Chinese trading companies, then I found Chinese factories. I mean, I made every mistake, but I just kept moving forward to increase my margin. But you still want to just grow your sell side. Your sales and your customers are most important. Right? Figuring out what they want. Yeah. Don't buy 10,000 units yeah. off the bat if you don't know what they want. Exactly. So yeah, you can get the cheapest price, but if you can't sell it, it doesn't matter. 
100 percent, dude. Well, Mike, thank you for coming oh, on the man. show. I appreciate thanks, your thanks, time, dude. Thanks, thanks. Hey, audience, please check him out at Global from Asia podcast yeah. and his book, which is e-commerce gladiator. Thanks, and man. that's on Amazon, right? Yeah, yeah, ecommercegladiator.com or yeah, just go to just search it on Amazon. Should be the first one, hopefully. It'll all be in the show notes. Thank you, brother. Okay, thanks, Mike. Ciao. Cheers. Awesome, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. What an inspiration you are to me as I start to enter this world of fulfillment by Amazon, sourcing products from Asia. It's a long road ahead of me, but I'm glad I know I have somebody to learn from through your podcast, Global from Asia, as well as your book, E-Commerce Gladiator. Again, folks, thank you for your time. All the links are in the show notes. Please pull out that phone, hit the subscribe button. If you are a first-time listener or whatever you're listening to this on, hit that subscribe button. really helps me in the ratings of iTunes just being found when people do searches, general searches. Please remember, I think you all are so very beautiful. I hope these episodes are inspiring you as much as they are inspiring me. And I look forward to sharing another one with you next week. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to... Choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new. To live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.